welcome to the Potter Discussion. Welcome back to the Potter Discussion. This is episode 97. And on today's episode, we will be going back to the very beginning of the Harry Potter movies. Let's do this. Episode 97! We are here, and I'm going to say it again. I am never going to stop saying this, but (laughs) it feels like just yesterday that I was sitting down here to record first breakdown but we are back and boy am I excited because I saw probably one of the best Harry Potter related things that I have ever seen in a very long time of course besides the movie of the books that was a documentary type thing made by the Warner Brothers on YouTube it was about an hour long and I was like just clicked on it for a break and I was thinking like a couple minutes and I was just like, okay, yeah, yeah, that was, this, this is pretty good. Maybe I'll come back to it. And the whole hour had gone by. So it was a fantastic documentary. And this thing was pretty much about how the Harry Potter movies started, how Joe's vision of the world of Harry Potter came and came together and everyone on the set and the actors and the auditions just everything kind of formed and it was it was so interesting now i highly recommend you watch this if not after this episode if not before even i would definitely 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 save this link i'll put it at the very very top of the show notes in the show notes so make sure you save that watch it now or later because this episode will be much more enjoyable if you do this is going to be kind of a discussion of that documentary and kind of going off of that and giving some of the points. So I'm going to be talking about the very beginning of the franchise of the actors, how they found out, how they met each other, and really how the on set, how it evolved. Of course, all the information I get from to this episode is from the documentary, again, in the description. I just can't wait. I'm very excited for this. So that is pretty much what this discussion is going to be about. So let's just, let's do this. Before we get into this episode, however, I will remind you that the two links in the show notes are still available, the SpeakPipe page link and the Google form link, if you want to click on those. Send me your best question, comment, topic, quizmaster question, joke, breakdown topic, or flip the script. I would absolutely love what you're here to have to say, and it is completely free and only take a couple minutes of your time, and I'll definitely listen to all of them. If you don't want to use those two links, my email is always open, thepotterdiscussion at gmail.com. That is thepotterdiscussion at gmail.com. All right, let's get into this episode. The first item on this list is how the trio got cast. This is a very interesting topic because there are three very different stories. I think we should start with Dan. So Dan Radcliffe was, he was acting before the Harry Potter franchise sent out a notice saying, Harry Potter is going to make a movie. So if you want to audition, come on down. And Dan had been in a couple of different movies slash plays before he had got the part of Harry Potter. 
And how we got this part was actually a very interesting story. David Heyman, the producer, went to a play with Dan's father, Mr. Radcliffe, because they were they were they were close friends. They had worked together before. And Mr. Radcliffe brought along Dan. In this documentary, David Heyman was kind of talking about how he wasn't really paying attention to the play. He was just kind of sneaking looks at Dan because he was thinking in his mind, we need to find a Harry Potter. Who can we cast? Someone who's young, black hair, just somewhat of an interesting character. Heyman describes his first interaction with with Dan as like seeing an old man in a young person's body. And that was really what they were looking for, someone who does not seem their age. So soon enough, David Heyman asked Daniel Radcliffe to audition for the role of Harry Potter. Of course, now the rest is history, but his audition process was very similar to how like it's it just seems so normal he will he goes into the room he reads his lines and when he leaves of course with a role this big you never assume that you're gonna get this role and funnily enough daniel radcliffe actually found out that he got the role in the bathtub which is another funny point in this documentary his dad just comes in and says you got the part and at first daniel thought it was a joke of course he of course he didn't why would he and as it turns out, it was not. And from that point on, Daniel Radcliffe was Harry Potter. So that's a pretty interesting story. But now on to Rupert. Rupert is a bit of a different story. He wasn't selected by David Heyman or even Chris Columbus, the director, to come in and specifically audition for Ron. All Rupert was thinking was, like, there's an audition, I might as well just go and try to see what I can do. I mean, it'd be great if I got the part, but of course I'm not expecting anything. So he goes in and he describes walking into the audition room and there were like a lot of different other people with, with ginger hair just kind of sitting, walking around. And Rupert was describing how bizarre it was to see people just standing there thinking the exact same things he was. So that was another interesting part of the documentary. And of course, when Rupert finished his audition, he got the part of Ronald Weasley. And that's when Dan and Rupert met each other on the first day and they took a couple of pictures and just they, they met each other for, for the first time. And I think they made a pretty good bond. I mean, they're they're best friends throughout the whole films. So it was a, definitely a, a very successful audition for both of those two, for Dan and Rupert. But now on to Emma. Emma Watson is, of course, plays the role of Hermione, and if anything, her audition was probably the most out of the blue out of all of them, because she was in school when her professor got a letter, and that letter was saying anyone who had even done a school play, just bring them out here to audition for Harry Potter. And, of course, Emma was thinking, okay, oh yeah, okay. Just like everyone else, not assuming she'll get the role, but not assuming she won't. Her professor says, oh yeah, Emma, uh, and a couple other people just go on, send out there. And, of course, that was, this is a letter sent to a lot of people throughout her whole school, maybe even her whole, I don't know, the whole of Britain. But besides that, Emma auditions for the part of Hermione, and surprise, surprise, she gets it. So... That is pretty much the story of how the trio got their parts as Harry, Ron, and Hermione. 
Now, we do have a couple of missing elements of the story that I think will be very valuable if uncovered. So let's let's move on and see what else we can do. One of the most difficult parts of making a film is getting the book right. There are so many elements of the story that have to be perfected in order for the movie to get properly taken in by the community of the book. And with Harry Potter, that is more true than ever. The book is so particular in the way the story is made and in the way it is crafted and developed. David Heyman and Chris Columbus had a, a job to make sure that it was perfect. And in the documentary, they expressed their worries and troubles in making the world of Harry Potter a reality. The, the story is very long, but there are a couple of pretty interesting things that I think you might like to hear. And one of them is so the candles hanging from the Great Hall. In the books, those are magical floating candles, and they are just floating there forever. And in the movie, Chris Columbus wanted the candles to be like actually there, to be real. And it seems impossible, and it was. So they tried it. They hung a bunch of candles with a uh, green wire, just uh, and they painted it out in post. And they had to light all the candles before each take and snuff all the candles after each take. And it just took so long and the hot wax actually ended up dripping on their food and melting everything. And it was really a horrible smell. They just couldn't bear to have real candles. So that just goes to show how dedicated the makers of this movie were to making it the best adaptation of Harry Potter they possibly could. And in addition to the Great Hall having real floating candles, they needed a space where they could have the Great Hall. Of course, they couldn't make the actual Great Hall that fits a thousand students. Chris Columbus was saying in the documentary that that is pretty much impossible and there's no way they could ever do that. And he's right. I mean, making a thousand, even more than a thousand person place because all, all the crew and directors and stuff, making a thousand plus person room with a limited budget with so much more to make is not something you would like to see in a film adaptation of a very popular book. So what they ended up doing was making an actual great hall that just didn't fit a thousand people. It, I think, fits something around like 700, maybe 600, which is absolutely huge, but not a thousand people. And they want the, the floors to be to look generally real, like they're made out of real stone, so they tested out a bunch of uh, wood-type things, linoleum, uh, a bunch of different tiles, but eventually nothing really, nothing really seemed real, so they just used real stone. The Grand Hall is made out of real stone, the floors, and it is just such a magical thing to think that the Great Hall isn't just a couple of green screens and uh, a long table. It's real walls with a real ceiling and stone floors and people everywhere, which just adds to the magic of Harry Potter. One 
of the more glaringly obvious facts is there were kids on set. Usually, working with kids in a movie is not that involved. You might have them for extras, you might just have the male boy be a kid just to add effect, but not in Harry Potter. In Harry Potter, the main characters were just kids, and they needed to somehow make sure everything worked. So, one of the more pronounced points in this documentary was that working with kids was surprisingly complicated. So, I'm sure that Danny Radcliffe and Watson and Rupert Grint could have handled more than what they were given, but it was the law that they couldn't. So, Chris and David were really involved in making sure that the schedule was right, that the timing and the filming was perfect. So, what they ended up doing was making a schedule that was like really, really tight. So they went in every single day, all the actors, well, the, at least Dan, Emma, and Grint, and they all went into the set and they all were filming every day, but they couldn't be filming 12, 13, 14 hours a day that you might typically see in a more adult-centric film, like, like, I don't know, Mission Impossible, for example. That you can have actors on set all day working to make it to get that movie done. But with Harry Potter, unfortunately, that is not the case because the kids on set just weren't allowed to stay that long. It was very difficult to figure out filming schedules and safety and making sure that everyone had what they needed and still performed at their best. But that was just part of the issue. The kids also weren't that experienced actors. Of course, except for Dan, he had, as I mentioned before, he had done a couple of prior things, plays, movies, etc. But everyone else just had done nothing. And it was interesting to see the, some of the behind-the-scenes clips of how they filmed and how they just kept on rolling and rolling and rolling and just got a take over and over and over and over and over again, just giving them direction, 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 change this, change that. It was just so rapid-fire and stressing. I was wondering, like, is, is this fun for them? Is that, like, is that what they want to do? But it turns out it wasn't so they would just get the clips done and the kids could go home. It was because... That's how they were kind of teaching and filming the actors at the same time. They would just keep the camera rolling for, say, 30 minutes. And they would... Uh, one of the more interesting ones I saw was when Harry ran up... When Harry, Ron, and Hermione ran up to McGonagall's desk and said, like, we need to talk to Dumbledore. This is important. It's about the Sorcerer's Stone. That is a very difficult thing to get right because it's such a big moment. They have to be doing it perfectly. So Dan had to say... Professor McGonagall gets important, and then, of course, Maggie Smith did everything perfectly. Dan then had to look at Emma and Rupert, and then, like, with the perfect time, the perfect expression, look back, then say, it's about the, what kind of whisper, the Sorcerer's Stone, he had to get that right, and then Ron and Hermione had to react and say their lines perfectly, and then they had to do that again and again and again to get all the angles right. So you can imagine how difficult it was for all of the kids to be keeping track of what's even happening. Everything's just so complicated when there are all these cameras and directors and actors involved that it is just so difficult and crazy to imagine that all of these people manage to get all of these takes 
and you can kind of tell that there are a lot of different like cuts and edits and quick transitions and as uh, David Heyman and Chris Columbus were saying, they really had to make sure that their editing was on point because they rarely got a take where everyone was said their lines correctly, everyone made the good facial expressions, and everyone acted on their top. And that was not something that I was thinking like, oh, of course, I kind of just always imagined there were just a lot of cameras and they wanted to include all those shots, but no watching now now that i tell you this you're gonna start to notice there are a lot of cuts i mean it's like really no cut it's like line cut line cut line cut line cut because the perfect line is rarely followed by another perfect line that's just the beauty of editing you can just chop the bad section off and put the good section in which is very helpful, but still, with the kids on set, there is no way that they could even get a good take in the time that they had allotted to themselves. So despite the fact that all of these kids were working really tirelessly to get this film done, it was still so stressful and almost anxiety-inducing that they had to get the perfect take at the perfect time. But nonetheless, they managed it, and they are all fantastic actors for it, which is a very, very good skill in life to have. Especially if you're an actor, being a good actor is generally a, uh, a positive thing <laughs> if it's your career. So Harry Potter was definitely a big, big boost for all of these young actors in their careers, and they really went on to do some really fantastic things. said before, Dan, Rupert, and Emma weren't accustomed to the life of being an actor, but that also includes being offset. So on this segment, we're going to be talking about how Dan, Rupert, and Emma dealt with being in a major movie franchise off and out of character. Sounds like a, a news headline, but it's just a random segment of podcast. So, Dan Rupert and Emma were in this huge popular thing, a movie, and they had to manage it. They had to, you know, think, be thinking to themselves, I can't, I can't be going out, I can't be showing my face. But that, like, it's just a difficult thing to adapt to during life. If you just randomly, just with a snap of your fingers, you couldn't go out in public without planning out uh, a route of secrecy. That's just a very, very difficult thing to do. And it happened to those three people. With Right when they got those roles, they couldn't go out in public without being chased down by paparazzi and just being forced to endure these people who just want the juiciest scoop. And it's a really difficult thing to adapt to in even in school and things like that so they had to drop out of their schools and get tutored on set during the like in between takes they had tutors like on the weekends or something like that and they were they were doing their schoolwork during takes that's what they're writing there they can't they're they aren't just fake writing they're actually doing their algebra they're, they're getting their reps in so it's a very difficult thing to just have a sudden lifestyle change and expect to adapt or, or rather be expected to adapt to it in such a, a quick manner i think most people just expect you to be like oh okay and then just go right along with it and no one would be none the wiser 
but that's not something that Ruru and Dan Rupert and Emma could do because the they were working so hard so often they couldn't just develop a schedule and stick to it. They had to be constantly adapting to what was happening. So they'd be making schedules uh, even months in the future, knowing that they, that they would have like a, a three-day slot where they wouldn't come into the set. It's just like so mind-boggling to think that these things were happening in such a rapid succession and so fast. There's almost no telling how difficult it must have been for Dan, Emma, and Rupert to be acting on Harry Potter. I mean, let's not let's not forget Harry Potter is probably the biggest movie at the time, or, or close to it at least. And they have to be working so often and so hard that they have just so many things on their plate. And making a schedule around the filming of this huge movie franchise around all of that. It just seems like too much. It just seems like one person or three people, they can't just throw aside everything and just start filming and start their life as an actor. That's just not how it works. But somehow, somehow, Dan, Rupert, and Emma managed it. Somehow, all three of them made a successful career and had generally happy lives while filming Harry Potter, which is an amazing feat. It's mind-boggling to be thinking about how they managed to conquer the beast of, you know, messy schedules and no sleep. It's just it's such a such an amazing thing to, to be thinking about while watching the movie of how just appreciating how difficult it must have been to get certain shots and to just see how everything came together with the whole world of Harry Potter relying on them. So it is a very interesting thing. It's the story beneath the story of Harry Potter. Now we move on to a topic that I've been wanting to talk about for so long. Uh, this is just something that I've been looking forward to talking about since I started. Since, I dare say, I have even watched the movies for the first time. Because I have always been very interested in the music. In the music of Harry Potter and in music in general, it just has been a very big part of my life. And... Harry Potter is no different. The music of Harry Potter is just something that can never be replicated. It has to be cemented as it is now, and it has been. So, what I want to talk about with music is how it was developed, how it was discussed, the composers, and how the movies integrated it with the, the, the actual music. So... Let's just start off with a quick history. So, uh, John Williams was the composer for movies 1, 2, and 3. Patrick Doyle was the composer for movies 4. Nicholas Hooper composed movies 5 and 6. And Alexander Desplat 
took home the trophy, I don't know, of Harry Potter, of the music, and composed movies 7 and 8. So, really a powerhouse set of composers, especially John Williams, Nicholas Hooper, and Alexander Desplat. They really did a fantastic job making Harry Potter music, and that is for a set of very specific reasons. There are a lot of different motifs and different little things in the music that really make Harry Potter pop. I would say most notably, Hedwig's theme. So I will not sing it because of copyright, but Hedwig's theme is probably the most played little tune in Harry Potter pretty much ever. So Hedwig's theme was first introduced when, of course, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Social Stone, whatever, came out and that was kind of the overarching bass music piece. Those couple of notes was really where the home of Harry Potter lies, and they are played in moments of hope and courage and justice, and really the core values that Harry has, the Hedwig's theme tune is played. And it is originally played, uh, a lot of people think it's played on the glockenspiel, but it is not. It is played on, a, on an instrument called the Celesta, which is a piano glockenspiel kind of mix, and that it gives you that trademark classic Hedwig's theme Harry Potter sound, and that is kind of played in the moments that, like we said before, where Harry is feeling courageous, or even when there are big moments happening that have to be marked. Hagrid in the, comes in with the scooter when Harry and Voldemort are doing it for like the last time. Things where it's just so big, and there's so much going on. Hedwig's theme is just kind of the default way to close everything up. That is how the composers managed to really cement their own kind of work together. It was John Williams that originally composed Hedwig's theme, but other composers brought it into their music after that. And although I do not believe Patrick Doyle really followed the I guess you would you could call it the rules of the music of Harry Potter. He really kind of branched out to make uh, very different styles of music, but he did Patrick Doyle did make uh, quite a large number of very popular songs, like uh, the Quidditch World Cup for one. I definitely enjoyed that one, and also Harry in Winter was another great one. So as you can see, there are a lot of different styles and techniques all of these different composers use to really make the world of Harry Potter in each of their own movies their own and magical and add the magic through the music in the way that the director and producers and even composers saw the music of Harry Potter to be. And as much as I wish I could just drone on forever about everything Unfortunately, we will have to come to a close. And again, I didn't finish all of my my talking points. I never do at this point. I just have too much to say about everything. So you will be seeing a part two. I am hoping in the future we will see how that turns out. But please, if you are sticking around to the end, if you are listening to this, you must care about Harry Potter. So please listen or watch the documentary. It is the first link in the show notes below. It is perfect. It is amazing. It is awesome. Please listen to that. It will definitely change your life for the better. Well, thank you for listening, and I want to know 
what did you think about the beginning of the Harry Potter franchise? Did you think the movie started off well? Did you think the first movie was a success? And if you could change one thing about the Harry Potter franchise, what would that one thing be? Please let me know. You've got the SpeakPipe page link. You've got the Google form link. You've got my email. You've got, yeah, I don't know, my Instagram the Potter at the Potter Discussion. So, so many different places to go. My email is thepotterdiscussion at gmail.com. That is thepotterdiscussion at gmail.com. I'm always monitoring every channel of communication, so no matter what you submit, I will definitely see it. As always, you raise your advantage, and I will see you later. This was the Potter Discussion.